you have to have a strong process. That's absolutely critical. Doesn't matter if it's a five person company or a 50,000 person company or 500,000 person company. Process is absolutely critical. Why? Because you need repetition. You know, as Tony Robbins says, repetition is the mother of skill. So you need to have that repeatable process. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello, and welcome to the Revenue Insights podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sonny Kumar. He's the Global Vice President of Sales at ServiceNow. Sonny has 30 years of experience in the technology space, leading large business units with P&L and sales responsibilities at ServiceNow, Salesforce, Accenture, and more. Sonny, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Lee. My pleasure. So first things first, I'd love to know a little bit more about your story and uh, give us some insight on you know, your 30-year career and how you've got to where you are today. Yeah, no, great. First of all, once again, thank you for having me. Great uh, to be here. Uh, so, you know, I'll condense this very quick. So I grew up in India and uh, then I moved to the U.S. Uh, about 30 years ago, 28 years ago, and uh, worked for several companies, including Ernst Young, Accenture, Fujitsu, so on and so forth. Uh, also lived in Australia for a couple of years. Uh, so grew up in India, lived in the U.S., lived in Australia, did a lot of work in Europe. And pretty much my career has been in sales and sales leadership. Uh, I have had uh, opportunities to run PL businesses. And along the way, uh, like we were talking pre-show, a lot of scars in the back and uh, some good insights and uh, you know so, some good, good wins along the way. But all in all, it's been a fantastic journey. And currently, as you said, I'm at ServiceNow leading a global sales for our company. Amazing. And I think the, uh, the scars in the back is what I'm really intrigued to dig into during our conversation today. Um, so something that we were really talking about during the pre-show uh, that I'd love to dive into a bit more um, is around this concept of mental models now um, and, and how you apply those to your teams. Now, I think we should begin with probably just defining what a mental model is for anyone that, that isn't aware of it. Um, so I'll leave that to you, actually, if that's yeah. right. No, thank you, Lee. So the way I think about mental models are they're a guidepost, a map. And the reason is the following, which is you know, sales is there's a lot of art and a lot of science. And what we try to do is if we look at um, you know, certain, certain mental models, which are really maps and, and uh, almost like guideposts, it, 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 it provides us some principles. They're not laws, but just principles and guidelines. And they help us fast track the process and make sure that we learn from some of the lessons from the past, like we talked about the scars in the back, and to optimize because we, all, we, are, we have a limited number of weeks. There's 52 weeks in a year, 13 weeks in a quarter, limited resources, budget. So how do we optimize all of that and make sure we get to the end result in the most in the most uh, optimized way, and that's what mental models does for us. And the way I, we think about that is 
There's mental models across various sciences. If you look at physics, chemistry, mathematics, philosophy, biology, neurosciences, economics, psychology, and there's all these different sciences to bring some of that into revenue and sales uh, is something of a um, personal passion of mine that uh, developed over years and uh, through a lot of mistakes, trials and errors. And that's really what's given us, um, you know, something to look forward. And these are not rocket sciences. You and I talked about a lot of these things are very obvious, but once you put a tag to it and once you have a method, it's almost like driving to a certain destination. You've got a map, you've got certain ways you can get around it. Uh, if there are some pit, uh, you know, obstacles, you can go around it. And that's what Mental Models does for us, if that so, makes sense. Absolutely. And I think to contextualize it, it'd be great if you could share an example of perhaps one mental model that really stands out to you as that's, that's really changed the way that you've run your, your, your teams. Yeah, um, there are several and we'll talk about you know, few in, in our course of our discussion. One of them that comes to mind is, um, you know, which we leveraged from Six Sigma, you know, back in the 60s and 70s with Toyota started the uh, the whole movement around minimizing errors and, and looking at root causes. So there's something called the five whys, W-H-Y. You know, so the, the idea is, five is not a magic number, but the idea is as you go and peel the onion ask more and more and more questions, you get to the root cause. That was how uh, the Six Sigma process was designed, which is asking multiple questions at each level, uncovering more and more and more. And finally, when you find the root cause and you fix it, a lot of the follow-on effects really become better. The way we'd look that and leverage that in sales is, I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, let's say there is uh, a deal that we're working on and you say, okay, we're going to close this this quarter. Why? Because the answer is, yes, there is a compelling event at the client. Beautiful. Question is, why is that a compelling event? Oh, because they have to start the project this quarter in order to go live in June. Next question is, why why do they have to go live in June? The answer may be, yeah, because their old system is being decommissioned. Beautiful. Why is the old commission, old system being decommissioned? Why does that, why is that important? Oh, because their system is going to run out of support. They're going to pay $10 million in fines and, you know, all of the, the late fees and stuff. That's a compelling event. So now you see we started from a compelling event that says it has to close this quarter, which is more from our point of view to now we're getting into the real reason, which is, um, you know, there is a, a penalty if the project doesn't go live, the client's got issues, so on and so forth. Very simple example, but similarly in, you know, in any of the deal cycles, the more and more questions we ask, we're able to uncover more and more of the actual reasons. And in some cases, there may be some things we can do ahead of time. Like in this case, we can go do some business value analysis. We can provide the client you know, a, a roadmap to get from here to our journey, our project, you know, go live, so on and so forth. And that's sort of how those questions really get us to not just the answers, but a lot of times the ability to do things that will help us land those that specific deal. Mm. I, I'm, I'm really intrigued to know uh, with that in mind, how 
how do you build that into what your teams are doing? Because obviously at ServiceNow, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure quite the size of the teams that you have. Do you have to build that into um, like your processes and your ways of working? Yeah, I think the, you know, the better questions lead to better answers, right? So it's, it's always about the asking the questions that will help us get to the next step. And it, it just is something we've ingrained this over years and years of, uh, of, of doing work because it's really impossible for every leader to get into the inside, the ins and outs of every single deal. But the idea is if you have a foundation, that's why mental models really and framework really helps, is if you're asking all of those specific questions, the five whys, for example, again, five is just a number, right? It can be six or seven or four, but the more and more we're asking the questions to get to the end state and what that helps is helps build a mutual close plan, right? And that mutual is very important because a lot of times we have close plans, um, but if it's not mutually agreed by us and the client, and it doesn't depend which company, but any company, that's one of the usual, the challenges we see is a lot of people have plans, close plans, which is inside out. It's their plan. But has that been vetted with the client? Has the client agreed with actions, dates, and owners? Right? When we have all of those locked in, that's, the, again, the power of questions is that forces us as in our company or and our team to go in and have those discussions with the client, sometimes uncomfortable because you're now putting names and actions to the client on the client side, but you need that because the deal doesn't get close by one side. It takes two to tango. And so when we get to that framework or, or not framework, but we get to that um, mutual close plan as an example, do all the dates work out exactly as they are? Most likely no. But the fact that now you have names associated with tasks, associated with dates, really puts onus on both sides and creates a lot of, um, you know, fills a lot of gaps. Because otherwise, if you think about it, just if we have a close plan, it's happy years, right? We love it. It's great. It's beautiful. But there is no commitment from the client. Maybe in principle there is, but if you, unless you put it down on paper, it, the, when we talk about scars in the back, that's one of them, which is learned the hard way is those are usually not a close plan. Those are just pipe dreams. They shouldn't be in the pipeline, right? That's, that's kind of the, uh, the area. So hopefully you know, through those questions, we uncover a lot of those, um, you know, hidden challenges and, in, and really make that, uh, and really take some action ahead of time. Because again, time is limited, right? We've got 13 weeks a quarter, 52 weeks a year. There's only so many things we can do to affect change and to bring that deal in. So earlier, the sooner we are asking the right questions, we're getting the teams to focus, getting the client's commitment, the, the sooner it is that we can bring those deals in and remove those roadblocks. With that in mind, and I like your point about, you know, it's not quite so systematic that you can have it you know, almost built into a pipeline review, for example, where it's like, you know, you're going through your five whys or however many you've got. Um, evidently, it's obviously going to be on a case-by-case basis. So with with that in mind, um, is there, of, of kind of the mental models that you've used in the past, is there one outside of the five whys, which you would say has been, I guess, been the the easiest to implement, but has had the largest impact on on how your teams have performed and how they're closing deals? So one of them, um, 
you know, again, it's very basic, very simple. It's called first principles, which um, you know, is, is borrowed from uh, Aristotle's metaphysics and the Indian school of Nyasa philosophy. Um, a lot of words, but what does that really mean? It means it's the foundation of a building. It's the lowest atomic level detail. So first principles means get to the lowest basics, common basics. I'll give you another analogy. So difference between a chef and a cook. So the chef is the one who creates the recipe. So he's got all these different you know, items and he, he creates a brand new recipe by, by, by taking onions and tomatoes and this and that, all the different spices, and he creates a brand, brand new recipe. So that's first principles. That's taking all the basics and creating something from first principles. The cook, on the other hand, takes that recipe and, and, and produces food. And basically, maybe with some minor mods or tweaks, that's the difference. So really getting into the basics of everything, you're boiling it down. So there's nothing, because typically we live by analogy. That's easy. Because if we look at, if we live our entire life by first principles, we will probably go back to the Stone Age, right? So we have to live by analogy. We have to move fast. But certain times you have to go back to the basics. And a similar, um, you know, analogy, I would say, and then I'll give you an example, is what they do in finance with zero-based budgeting. So typically, what, is, what does that mean? In typical budgeting, let's say somebody has a budget of 40 million this year. They'll go back next year and say, okay, I need 5 million more because of whatever, they provide a business case. The company will say, okay, I'll give you 4 million. Here you go. Done. Happy. In zero-based budgeting, this year it's 40 million. Next year, they, they want another five. They have to go back and start from zero. And they have to, they have to justify every single dollar from zero to 45. So it's no longer the difference, but everything. You start from zero. And that creates, obviously, it's, it's very time consuming. It's painful, but it puts the discipline back on every single line item. So how do we use that in sales? Um, many years ago, about a couple of decades ago, we had a situation where you know, we were, we were, uh, our growth slowed for, for some bizarre reason. We were still growing, but not at the pace at which we were expecting the market, everything. It was just very, very different. Um, we were winning some, some deals, but we were losing a lot of deals. It, the deal momentum slowed. And we did all the usual forensics of pipeline analysis and looking at deal structures and commercials and all of the stuff you can imagine. Again, it was a very high level by analogy. Then we said, okay, let's, and we didn't call it first principles, but you know, that's what we did. But as we said, it's just putting a name to it. Uh, what we did was we locked ourselves in a room for two days and we said, okay, let's look at the entire market, the whole TAM for the market. Who, you know, where are the customers? Let's look at the top 100 customers. What is their spend? So we went back to basics, back to the lowest atomic level detail. We looked, what is their spend? Okay, each one of them. What percentage of their revenues? Who are the competitors in there? What is their, uh, you know, what is their footprint? We looked at all of that. Then we looked at our territory. How are we serving those clients? And then we said, instead of tweaking it, we just said, throw everything out of the window. Let's, if we were to start a brand new company, how would we assign territories to these set of customers? And we did that. And then we said, okay, you know, it's territories, sub-territories, areas. We, we did all of those mapping. And then we said, okay, now if we were to align our people 
to each of these territories to serve those end clients? How would we do it? Looking at each of the uh, uh, the client directors and salespeople's background, their industry relevance, their ability to sell certain solutions, products, and we did an entire pivot. And thankfully, this was just about the beginning of the new fiscal year for us. So we did that. And so you see now we took the entire playbook and changed it. And we started from ground zero and we did all this in a, in a, in a ground up manner. And that became our structure for the new year. At the end of that particular year, we grew 150%. And the simple reason for that is now we, we were better aligned. It was not magic. We were better aligning the reps to the right territories, to the right accounts. And then we did a look back and what we found, Lee, was we were leaving a lot of money on the table because we were over pivoting on a few rock stars that had a few great accounts. And guess what happened? They closed some large deals, but they had only certain bandwidth. So a lot of those other accounts were going unserved. And then we had focused a lot of people into areas where they it was not their core competency. So we were we were not aligning the right reps to the right territory, to the right accounts. It just happened over time. This happens in any organization. Over time, there is minor tweaks because that's what you do every year. You tweak a little, you tweak a little, you tweak a little. But at some point, you have to go back to first principles. We say going back to basics, same thing, where you put everything on the table, start with the lowest atomic level detail and build it up. It's a, it's a beautiful example. Um, and I think as you kind of went through it, the, it resonated a lot with me because I think from a decision-making perspective, it often, and in particular, you know, as we have a lot of, uh, of operations leaders on the podcast as well. You know, often it's a conversation around, you know, the devil's in the detail and you're looking at all of the data in front of you. And sometimes it's so valuable actually taking a step back and, and really generally stepping away from it and I, I love the idea of literally starting almost from the beginning right um yeah. of taking everything that you've learned and it's often a question that i ask is you know knowing what you know now what would you do differently if you had the opportunity to start again um and it's a- amazing to hear the example that that you've shared there in terms of how you can actually start to apply that to sales teams because often you can end up so far you know with your head down the rabbit hole of trying to work out what on earth is wrong with this and actually sometimes it's better to you know keep it simple and look at look at um, how you can, you know, if you were to start again, the the impact that you can make. Um, so, with that in mind, um, would you say that that is uh, one of the, I guess, the easier ones to implement? Um, and and probably a better way of putting that is, if you, you know, knowing what you know now, and and obviously you're at service now at the minute. If you were going into a, a new business, is there a mental model that you perhaps use from the very beginning? Say you were joining a new company where it's you know, this is going to be one of the key founding principles of, of the team that I build. Yeah, no, listen, I think the first principles is always, always good. And it's it, it what it does is um, it forces discipline and it forces us to stare at the problem long enough, right? The other one, which, um, you know, we like to steal from different uh, sciences, one from mathematics is there was an 18th century um, mathematician called Carl Jacobi. And he used to, saw he solved some very tough, complex equations and problems using um, something called inversion. And his term was invert, always invert. 
Uh, I'll tell that, share that in a minute. Um, a big fan of that is also Charlie Munger, who was uh, Warren Buffett's uh, partner. And he uses that model quite a bit. So some great minds using these models. So uh, what it really means, Lee, is you look at a problem, like uh, I'll give you Charlie's example, Charlie Munger's example. He says, when you make an investment, that's what his business is, makes investment. You look at it and say, okay, typically you want that investment to grow and give you massive returns. That's generally the idea. But you look in the inversion principle and say, okay, you made an investment and over time you play this forward and that investment massively failed. It went to zero or you lost a ton of money. Now what you do is you invert back. You work backwards and say, why did that fail? Okay, so it's a very different way of saying. So let me let me give you an example of how we do how we use that in revenue and sales. So typically, and and by the way, the caution is we we should not be using this a lot of times. This should be used sparingly, and the reason is because it's got that negative connotation. Generally, in sales, we are we're very positive, right? All of us in in, in sales and revenue, we want to hit the we want to hit the target. We want to close the deals. We want to give. Uh, deliver maximum uh, value to our customers and all of that. So it's beautiful. So that's how generally sales forecast deal reviews all go. Everything is about, okay, here's the five steps or six steps or 10 steps that I'm doing from now till deal close. Beautiful. Great. No problem. That's all rose colored glasses. But now a few years ago, and I'll give you an exact example. So that'll tell you how we used it versus just talking in abstract. So a few years ago, um, we were working on what was the largest deal of our company at the time. And it, it was going to be the make or break for all of us, for the company, for the quarter, for the year. And so we did all the right things. As you can imagine, we had all of these deal reviews, forecast, all those things. We've checked everything, checked the boxes, all those things. Then we said, okay, let's spend some time and think about all the reasons why the deal would not get done. And then let's work backwards. So very hard to do, right? Because you generally don't want to think negative. You want to think positive. You want to say yes, yes, yes. But that's what we did. We said, okay, let's assume it's December 31st or Jan 1, end of the fiscal year. The client says, nope, no deal, done. Why would they say no? So then we said, okay, one reason would be the chief sponsor would say, I'm I'm not in agreement. I'm not in alignment. Why? Because they've not been bought in. Okay, what can we do now? So that's the exercise. What can we do now to prevent that and to convert that and have the person say yes? Okay, Uh, we need to have our exec sponsor talk to their exec sponsor and make sure there is that alignment. Uh, Have we done that? Yes, we did that. Uh, You know, they had a call five weeks ago. Okay, but are we really confident that that sponsor is going to say yes? Uh, Maybe not. What can we do? Let's align another call in four weeks and make sure we, that our sponsor presents the business case again and make sure they're in complete alignment and to really check the box. Okay, great. Let's do it. Next line item. Why would they say no even if the chief sponsor says yes? Okay, they've got 14 people in their committee and this is a very large deal, which means every one of the 14 must say yes. One person says no deals off. That's how important this deal is or how big the business is. Okay. Do we have confidence? Now it's the internal team talking. Do we have confidence that each of the 14 are going to say yes? 
Everybody looked at each other, say yes, 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 yes. But two people, uh, we're not sure. We don't know. Now, this is a safe space, right? Because, so Lee, what I'm saying is this is a safe space. We're all now debating, discussing. So everybody's, it's all mental games now. So everybody's very open. So two of them, we have some challenges. We're like, ah, we're not sure. So what do we do? Line up those calls. Okay, done. Then the next item is a value assessment. Are we business value? Are we, why would they say no? They would say no if they don't believe our solution will deliver the exact business value that we think or we have shared with them. And what do we do if, if that happens? Uh, or what do we do to reverse it? Well, we have to make sure they are convinced of the business value. They're so convinced that they're excited to sign the deal. They're, they're, they're really, they want to get this deal done. Are we really sure they're excited? Uh, well, everybody's like, listen, we did a great business value assessment. We delivered this. I said, no, no, it's not about we, it's about them. What about, are they fully in board? Well, here's the two steps. We provide them a business value assessment. Guess what happens? They take that and they put their internal financials, which we're not privy to, and then they share that internally. So how confident are we that in that process, they do end up with a very strong business case. Well, you know, we've heard a few things. People have said it's okay. Don't worry about it. Are we fully sure? No. So what do we do next? Let's go back to our champions. And while we don't have privy to the internal financials and we don't have to, can we test that again to make sure are they missing anything? Are there, is there anything else they need? For example, have we shared with them the specific benefits their another customer of ours have received, which is in the same industry as them, because that's the closest proxy we can find. While we can't get into their financials, we can share with them another customer, same industry, here's what they've received and delivered. Okay, let's check that. So what we did was coming out of that meeting, Lee, we had five or six things that because of the inversion principle, we said, okay, we, we looked at the worst case and then we said, here are all the things we need to do. We did all that over the next 30 to 60 days. And eventually I'm happy to report that we did close the largest deal in the history of our company. And, you know, were the, all the less steps required? I don't know, but I, I'm not going to, you know, put anything to chance on a very large deal like that. So that's the reason why I say this is not something we can use in every single deal. That would be time consuming. It would bring a lot of complexity, but in very large deals, very significant deals, critical deals, strategic deals, a great exercise to, 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 to change our thinking because we're always thinking it from a positive direction, which we must. But this thing, this inversion principle forces us to think about it in a different connotation and then work backwards and then change the course of trajectory so that we get the different result. It's the thing that really stands out to me from that is you mentioned around the complexity of it. And, and I'm really keen to get into another um, mental model, which is Occam's razor, which, you know, goes along this very much the same principles. But just before we move on to that, with regards to the in inversion theory, so how do you choose then, you know, when to apply it? Because as you say, you know, you use it on, you know, what was potentially going to be the biggest deal in, in the company's history. So for anyone that's kind of listening at home going, okay, that sounds great. Um, I'm going to apply it to every deal that I've got in my pipeline right now. Um, 
how how would you go about going okay let's use it is it just on the, the the value of the deal or perhaps on the complexity of it it's yeah i think it's the, it's two things one is for sure a very high value deals personally i i always use it even if it is my own in my own head trying to understand the questions you ask right so a lot of the questions that come out are from the from the reverse engineering so absolutely very large deals critical deals we must do it. The other is when there are multiple, um, you know, stakeholders, very complex deal, global, which has many different areas, for example, multi-business unit deals where there's a lot of different business units. And what it really does, Lee, is it gives us um, the blind spots. It shows us the blind spots, but it is very time consuming, which is why, you know, I would suggest we should not be using this for every single deal because also the challenge is if you're using it every day, every time, the tone of the thinking, because we're all thinking in, 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 uh, you know, in certain energy levels, it, it becomes very negative. So you don't want that. So it's really to be used sparingly. Uh, like just like salt or sugar, right? Just use it a little bit, uh, but very powerful, extremely powerful. And once you use it, I think you can, um, you know, you can use some of those questions in pretty much every deal. But uh, the process itself is very time consuming, and uh, that, that's how I would do it. So something that I've, I've really am quite curious to dig into. You know, we talked a lot about these models, and I'm going to make an assumption to the listeners at home that some people are like, oh, you know, resonating with, oh yes, I've used that before, but. You know, to, to the point you made earlier, when we were talking kind of pre-show, I, I found the same thing. Whereas, oh, I have heard of this, I know about it in like through my own experience, but never actually put a, put a name to it. So I, I can tell that obviously you're really passionate about understanding mental models and how you start to apply them. So for someone that, you know, this may be the first time they've heard of mental models or they've never thought of actually applying it to their day-to-day, how would you recommend that they, you know, get started perhaps understanding them, but also starting to use them in their general day-to-day? Because I get the impression from talking to you that it's not as simple as, oh, yes, you can just take it and just plonk it into this way of working. You know, I, I get the get the sense that it's really your experience that has built up this level of understanding. And it's very much a case of, you know, knowing which one to use at the right time. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good, good point, Lee. Uh, so for me personally, I've uh, enjoyed you know, reading across the different sciences and trying to pick up the uh, the nuances and apply it to my field. That's just been a personal passion of mine. Uh, however, as you said, a lot of these principles are not necessarily rocket science or something which you have to learn. You have to be you have to recognize that that's the critical thing. And the second thing is we have to apply it and see how it works. Now, as I said at the start of the show, it's these are not laws. These are principles and guidelines. What does that mean? It means it's not going to work every single time. It, it is showing us the way, just like a map would. But if, what if there is a road closure? Then we're not going to say the map is wrong. We just go do a little bit of a detour and go around it. So the way I think uh, people should think about it is it's good to take some of these, practice it, and use it in our day-to-day lives in revenue and sales. And typically, this comes in kind of several forms, you know, sales process, uh, sales methodology, uh, deal negotiation. So try some of these things in our day-to-day aspects. And what you'll find is, uh, you know, the more and more we're using it, our teams are beginning to begin to adapt. 
Uh, and who cares about the name? These names are all just, uh, you know, just they're like, uh, they're good to um, talk about it. But the key thing is if we can use it in our day-to-day lives and, and create a better result and outcome for us and our clients, I think that uh, is proof of the pudding. Okay. So which one do you, do you use most day-to-day? The, uh, you know, we've talked about the first principles, um, the five whys, uh, use that quite a bit. Uh, and then there's another one you alluded to, Occam's Razor as well, which uh, is quite interesting, uh, sort of a bizarre name and term. But uh, if I can quickly explain that, if, uh, if that makes sense right now. So um, the name is Occam's Razor. Occam is a place, as you know, in your neck of the woods in Surrey, England. And so this was um, the William of Occam in the 14th century. So this is about 700 years ago. Uh, he was a Franciscan friar and philosopher. And um, uh, this is also called the law of parsimony. So a lot of big words and mumbo jumbo. What does all that mean? It's very simple, actually. So like a razor, Occam's razor is like a philosophy razor. It shaves off all of the obfuscation. And what he says is of all of the different, if there are two or more explanations to get to an endpoint, use the one which has the simplest assumptions, not the easiest, but simplest assumptions. And the law of parsimony is basically parsimony means you know, being very frugal about your resources about uh, and, and using it in a very uh, uh, concise manner. So I'll give you two examples of how we use it, uh, how we can use it in revenue and sales, um, in this, per- this precise principle. So the first one is, again, very obvious. Uh, you know, it's about time constraints or resource constraints. We all have resource constraints. There's limited budget, limited number of people, limited time. So what it says is we should be ruthlessly prioritizing our quarter, our month, our year, and doing the the things that will help us advance our cause, right? Very basic, very, very fundamental, uh, but makes a big difference in sales where an account exec may have 10 accounts to go after. You know, where does he or she prioritize? Very, very critical because you don't you don't have time to go in and and prospect all ten accounts. As an example, you have to you know be very prescriptive on where you prioritize your time. Once you land in, lock into that account, multiple business units, multiple stakeholders. Where do you prioritize your time? Another lens to look at it is you've got marketing budget campaigns. You can spray and pray and hope something works, but how do you really focus that into a specific business unit or account? So that's really what the the law says, the law of parsimony, which is being very prescriptive. Again, nothing that we don't know. We know about it. But the challenge is sometimes we get so busy in the urgent work, the important work takes a backseat. So it's a good, you know, good thing for us to keep in mind as to why, uh, what that is important. I'll give you a second, um, you know, sort of example, which is, you know, what, let's say we have, again, I'll take an example of a deal, but then that's, it can, it can go across anything. Um, so let's say another, a, you know, we're talking with internally. Let's just say we're talking with our team to say, okay, this is a particular deal. It's going to come in this quarter. And so we say, okay, what are some, um, you know, why would it come in? Okay. Because have we, what are some, some key things? Um, we'll go through the same list, exec sponsor, alignment. If the answer is yes, okay, 
and shave off, just like the razor shaving off. So you've got 10 or 15 things why the deal should close. And you're going through each line by line and you're shaving off the things that, that are, that are, that are done. So second one, maybe have we done a business value assessment? Yes. Shave that off. Have we provided them with a reference account that, that they can talk to and really, you know, it makes sense. Okay. Done. Have we presented? Have we, are we on with procurement? Have we provided the right pricing? Are they, is there any objection? The answer is yes, there's an objection. So leave that on the, on the, on the board. And so we go through those 10 or 15 different, uh, items that need to be done to close the deal. We, we shave off all the ones that are done and only the ones that are remaining are the ones that uh, really need to make, ha- need to happen in order to close the deal. So Occam's razor basically tells us that the, you know, if, we, if you take off all of these things that have to make, uh, have to happen to close the deal, then you're in good shape. Otherwise, there's more work to be done. Again, very simple, very simple, straightforward. We all do it. Um, it's just, you know, how, uh, how we apply that in our day-to-day lives. Otherwise, the challenge is we're looking at deals, we're talking about it, we're asking questions, but if we don't have that list, for example, um, you know, it's hard to tell whether uh, we've checked all the boxes or are there, are there any surprises? Because a lot of times, Lee, there are deals are like organisms. They have a life of their own, right? There are certain, that's why sales is an art and a science. There are some, there are, and sales process and methodology have certain uh, steps along the way that must be done to move to the next stage, right? Every company has got that. But there are certain underlying um underlying, uh, you know, dependencies that are not very obvious till you go through this process. And that's what some of these frameworks help us tap in early. The challenge is if you find that out at the 11th hour, when the procurement says, no, I'm not really in agreement because of A, B, and C, not a whole lot you can do other than massively discount, which you don't want to do, right? So if we're able to catch that early, then you're able to do certain things where you preserve the value of the deal and and be and you're still able to close that in the requisite time. Mm. Something that you mentioned there, which really stood out to me, was you know sales being an art, and I think it's a really interesting debate between sales being an art and sales being a science. And and you know I, I know from various different guests that we've had in the podcast, there's definitely uh, people on both sides of the fence. So with with Occam's razor in mind. Um, what would you say are, um, you know, to keep things simple, what are some of the foundational um, like procedures, processes that, that you run with your teams to, you know, one, to keep it simple, but that you believe are essential? Because I think there's a balance between the two of it being an art and it being a science. And I've talked to some people who make, you know, the most crazy, like complex systems, which are so hard to impl- implement. And then I've spoken to other, you know, super successful leaders that keep it so simple. It's, it's almost amazing that it's, that it works in a way. Right. Um, so with that in mind, from your perspective, one, where do you toe the line? And two, what would you say are some of the foundational things that you do as your teams to, to make sure that they're set up for success? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, the, here's the idea, which is you, you have to have a strong process. That's absolutely critical. Doesn't matter if it's a five person company 
or a 50,000 person company or 500,000 person company. Process is absolutely critical. Why? Because you need repetition. As Tony Robbins says, repetition is the mother of skill. So you need to have that repeatable process, which has been fine-tuned. And this is the beauty of this, which is you learn from experience. You fine-tune it back to what I was talking about with the first principles. You need to have that process really, really fine-tuned. And and I, I use that three or four times because it's not a process that you build and you say, great, you got a sales process, which means, you know, moving from stage A to B to C or every company's got their own, you know, so I won't get into all the, all the names and stages, but it, you, know, you know what I mean. The methodology and the process, it has to be consistent, number one, because then everybody can speak the same language. So if I say stage five, everybody knows what it is. If I say I've moved from, uh, you know, expect to commit, everybody knows what, what that is. So the language, semantics, very important. Um, the second part of that, Lee, is it needs to be refined because it's like an organism. Everything, it's malleable. It's, we grow, we grow old, we learn, we, you know, we, 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 we get energetic certain times. We are, uh, and so same thing in a, in a sales organization. It's malleable. It's got a life of its own. It breathes. So you have to adapt, you have to change, you have to fine tune, you have to tweak it. That's the science part of it, which means it is a constant refinement. There's no process, there's no methodology that you put that in there and it'll work forever. It has to be, and the frequency one can debate, is it every year, is it twice a year? Who knows? It depends on how often you see uh, uh, the process diverging from the mean you bring it back, you bring it back, right? So that's critical. So that, that you need to keep a close eye on the, pre- the process, the methodology, and refining that to adjust, to tweak it. Because again, why do you adjust it? It's based on how the organization's moving, how the deals are being shaped, how it's being won or lost. So that's the process. So I'm a big believer in process. That's the science part of it, 100%. And then... Um, you know, the art part of it is the human relationship, right? Because that's the, the emotion, the feeling part of it. And that is something on both sides. One is with our teams to motivate the team, to get the team at, at peak performance. And then also with the uh, ecosystem partners, you're working with partners, you're working with end clients, with the, end, with the customer. That is the emotional part. That is something which is, um, you know, which we, there are certain uh, foundational principles, but I believe there is a certain art around it and how to, uh, you know, where to over pivot on science and art. That is, that itself is an art. Uh, and that's sort of what I would uh, categorize it, uh, but very high on metrics. So, you know, you definitely need to run an organization uh, on metrics on method, methodology, people, process, technology. It's a very nice blend there. Um, and so that's kind of how I would uh, summarize it, Lee. Amazing. Sunny, I want to ask one final question. And we've talked a lot about mental models. So I feel like I might have a sense of what your answer might be to this. However, um, if there is one book that you could recommend to other revenue leaders, what would it be? Because I know you are a, uh, a, a an avid reader, particularly of nonfiction. So what would you say? There are several, so many. Um, the one that uh, I would, just in the interest of, because I love to to read across different disciplines and domains, um, 
and bring some of those insights. And it's, again, no uh, dig against the sales and revenue. There's tremendous books on sales and revenue that I also read, but a lot of your listeners would already know that. So something outside the norm, which uh, I would highly recommend, is a book by Howard Marks. Uh, Howard Marks is the founder of Oak Tree Capital Management. Uh, it's $165 billion assets under management. So the guy knows what he's doing. One of the very big investor, uh, made tons of uh, you know success in his life and all that. Uh, his book is called The Most Important Thing. And in the first chapter, on the first few chapters, he talks about another mental model that I'll give you in a quick, a quick second here. Is he calls it the second order thinking. And in his business, uh, what he says is, you know, if, if everybody knows the news, the price is already baked in the stock. Right? Very simple. If, if you know Ford is coming up with a great car and everybody knows about it, everybody's excited. Guess what? Everybody's buying that stock. The stock goes up. There's no point in, Howard says, there's no point in me buying that stock because it's already baked in. So what are some things I can do, which is Howard, he says about himself, that I can do uh, that nobody knows? And what are some insights that I can I can come up with, which nobody has thought about, nobody has the time, nobody wants to invest the time? That's what he calls a second order thinking. So first order thinking is is what most people do. So that's the reason I, I like that, that, that philosophy in that book is the same thing is a lot of times in our revenue and our deals, we know all the, all the steps that go along the way to get that, to make that happen. What are some things that nobody's thinking about? So for example, if we're going into a new market, if we're moving from a product to a platform, having one product to multiple products, that's a big second order thinking. So what are all the things that we need to do in order to get there? Meaning, uh, are we ha- do we have the right staff? Do we have the right team members? Do we have the right solutions? Do we have the right cus- uh, people that we're talking to, customers? All of that changes. So long answer to your question, but that's a book I would highly recommend. Very different discipline, but the principles that he talks about are applicable to all of us in our business. Amazing. It, it's going on my reading list. That sounds fantastic. Uh, Sunny, it's been so, so good to have you on, uh, on the podcast. Um, for everyone listening at home, uh, that, that wants to, you know, learn a little bit more from you, um, where can they find you? I'm on uh, LinkedIn and I'll, I'll shoot you the, the link there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't use Facebook or any other uh, social media. I'm on Twitter as well. Twitter as well. Amazing. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll put links to both down into the show notes. So, so everyone can, can reach out, connect and, uh, and hear more about, uh, what you're talking about with mental models. Um, Sonny, thank you so much again. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and, uh, to everyone that's listened to, to this week's episode. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much, Lee. You've been awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.